Welcome back, listeners, to another wonderful episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We have a very honored guest with us today. You may have recognized this guest name from your bookshelf, from online, from your playbill. But joining us today, we have author Robert Viagas, who is the author of 22 books, including the upcoming book, Right This Way, A History of the Audience, as well as another fascinating book I would love for us to talk about today called Good Morning Olive. You can get all of these books anywhere you buy your books, obviously, including the upcoming one, Right This Way. It is available for pre-sale, but we are just honored to have him here. So let's go ahead and bring our guest on. Robert, welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. It's... I have no words. You're you're here. This is incredible, Andrew. I'm so happy to be here. What a great show you have! It's it's just so entertaining, and it, your love of the theater really shines through. Thank you so much for that. I recognize the name. I recognize your work. I mean, I the, the Playbill Yearbook, the at this theater, all of these things that I've had for so many years, and and now you're here, and you've got these two great books I'd like to talk about today. Good morning, Olive, and Right This Way: A History of the Audience. Why don't we start with Good Morning, Olive? Because this is a fascinating story that we were talking about. Could you tell us a little bit about this book? All right. Well, the title "Good Morning, Olive" refers to one of Broadway's most active ghosts, probably its most active period. And that's Olive Thomas. Olive Thomas haunts the New Amsterdam Theater, is said to haunt the New Amsterdam Theater. She she has been seen and experienced by many, many people going back to the 1920s. She was actually a, a Follies girl. She married Jack Pickford, who was the brother of Mary Pickford, the America's sweetheart. And she, after she left the uh, Follies, she became a movie star during the very end of the silent era. She, unfortunately, she had a very tragic death. Some people say she was murdered. More likely, she committed suicide. And uh, she almost immediately started appearing, even though she committed suicide in Paris, she almost immediately started appearing backstage in her old haunt at the New Amsterdam Theater. And she has appeared at the New Amsterdam Theater pretty consistently now for a hundred years. She always appears the same way. She's in a white, she's in a white gown. She has a a sash, like like a Follies Girl sash, and she carries a blue bottle. And people wondered for years what this bottle was. I did a little research and I found out the that the medication that she used to commit suicide was sold in a blue bottle so she this is how she appears and for many years she appeared only to men at the new amsterdam theater recently i've been getting stories of her appearance to women so i guess after a hundred years olive has become woke she is she's become a little bit more uh, democratic she is somebody who is she has an attitude that's one thing that's kind of interesting she has a she, she likes to be treated with respect Dana Amendola, who's the house manager over at the New Amsterdam, who is not only is he Olive's 
landlord. He's also kind of her keeper. He he kind of tracks appearances and, and he was a wonderful source, although certainly not my only source. There have been lots of appearances over the years. And what he's done is he's put her picture at every entrance to the theater. So if you open up the stage door, you'll see a picture of Olive. You come in through the front door at the end of the long gallery where all the pictures of the Follies stars were. There's one name that you may not recognize, Olive Thomas. So that even the audience can say to her because and Dana has discovered that if you do not say good morning, Olive, when you come to work in the morning or whenever it is that you arrive, stuff happens to you. Your your dressing table will be knocked on. The contents of the table will be knocked on the floor. The lights around the your your mirror will will be will blow out all at once. So you'll be tripped when you're walking down the hall or down the stairs. Things will happen to you if you do not pay her the respect that she feels that she deserves. There's been, there's a lot of interesting ghosts on Broadway and I've been collecting their stories for about now, about 25 years. And I, I still, even since I finished writing the, the book, people have been hearing about it. I've been getting emails from people all over the country and around the world saying, do you have this ghost story? Do you have this ghost story? Theaters, uh, theaters are, are, a lot of the theaters are haunted, though not all the theaters are haunted. Uh, and I can say this because I have done scientific re scientific research on this. When I, for ten years, I was editor of a publication called the Playbill Broadway Yearbook. And what I would do is, for every show, this the, the yearbook would contain all the contents of all the playbills from that season. And what I would do, just to give the book a little extra interest, I would pick somebody, one person on each show to be my correspondent. And I sent them a list of questions and they're like, what did you do for your opening night party? You know, do you have traditions that you do backstage? You know, what do you do when it's somebody's birthday? Things like that. I would always ask them, have you had any ghostly experiences? An interesting response. So I have, I could do like a spreadsheet of every show at every theater and whether there's a ghost or not. And the thing that's interesting to me is that some theaters never had a ghost story. The correspondent would come back and say, oh, I'm sorry, we, we we really don't have a ghost story for you. We, we can make one up if you want. I'd say, no, 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 no. I want stories that people really believe that they've, where they really believe they've seen a ghost. And so some of the theaters never had a ghost, but several of the theaters always had a ghost. Show after show, people would come back and say, well, you're going to think I'm crazy, but you won't believe what we what happened to us. And the stories were pretty consistent from show to show. People who didn't know each other would tell me the same story. You know, Andrew, it's almost as if there actually were ghosts, were ghosts at some of the theaters. So I, you may be skeptical if you want, but again, I've approached this in, in a scientific way and, and the results are fascinating. Yes. So how did you come up with the idea of like wanting to write this book, Good Morning Olive? I used to share an office with a great old guy named Louis Botto. He was, he'd been at Playbill since the 1930s. And he wrote, in addition to writing a lot of columns for Playbill, he wrote at this theater, which was the history of the theater. And it was a little frustrating because, you know, Playbill, we have those teeny tiny little pages and we had to fit like the whole history of the theater. And every year there were more shows that needed to go in. So it was a little frustrating. So I became his editor. And then when he retired in 2010, I took over the column. So I, I did it for a while. And what I what we did was we took all 
the the entire history of the theater because what you saw in the program was a radically condensed version of the history of the theater. Lewis, of course, had the whole history and he would pick and choose. And so I, we did a book that had the complete histories of all the theaters. And I was, I was editor for the 2000 um, edition and then I was co-author for the 2010 uh, edition. And I added all those things. I hope they do, I hope they do another one. It's, it's kind of, it's time. Uh, so much interesting, so many interesting shows and so much interesting history has passed during the past 13 years. It's really, I think they should do a, an update on that. But that's how I, so I shared an office with Lewis and Lewis used to be the ghost guy. I'd be sitting there and his phone would ring and he'd pick up the phone and it would be some person at a theater saying, I've heard that you're the, the ghost guy. Something happened to me and I can't understand it. I don't know. I can't explain it. And Lewis would very carefully explain the history of that particular ghost. Now, during the time we were sharing the office was when Disney was rehabilitating the new Amsterdam. And we started getting calls from the people who were working on the on the, the theater. And they would say, we had, a, we had a guy the other night who was working in the mezzanine and he turned around and suddenly there was this woman standing next to him holding a blue bottle. Oh, and she said to him, how you doing, fella? That voice that I'm imitating for you, different people who have heard Olive, who have encountered Olive, they all imitate her voice exactly the same way. Very rare for a ghost to actually speak to a person. But we've established Olive is very, uh, very assertive. And so the worker immediately went down to talk to the foreman to say, if you're going to let visitors wander around, they have to wear hard hats. And the foreman said, was it a woman in a white gown? And he said, yes, it was. Was she carrying a blue bottle? Yeah. I said, you just saw the ghost. So the, so the guy was like freaked out and called Lewis bottle. I, I had to listen to this phone call. And so as time went along, Lewis I said, Lewis, you know, this was this seems like this would be a book. And and he was like, Oh, Robert, no, this is I don't I don't think so. It's, people won't believe it. I don't want people to get people in trouble. They'll think that people that they're crazy. And I said, Lewis, there people aren't gonna think they're crazy. I mean, if you get a bunch of them together, and I find that that's true. When I talk to people at first, they're sometimes a little hesitant to tell me their stories. They don't want the world to think they're crazy. So I throw out a few of my ghost stories as chum to and to and to make them feel more comfortable. And then they'll tell me these amazing stories. And and that's and it's been great. And so Lewis, as I said, retired and then Lewis passed away. I've been doing this as a lecture at libraries and colleges. And I changed agents and my and I said, you know, I've always thought this would make a great book. And my new agent said, it absolutely would. I but love me. that. And and it sounds amazing. I really can't wait to read this. I'm hooked. Well, I have full chapters on Olive and on David Belasco, as we mentioned. But then some of the uh, some of then I start to kind of group the uh, the the stories because Olive and David Belasco are by far the most active on Broadway. And it's not like this, this happened years and years ago only. I think there are things that are happening right now. They, they had a, a watchman at the New Amsterdam uh, uh, during, during COVID. He was walking backstage and he saw this woman coming toward him, wearing the white gown, the blue bottle. And she came up to him and she smiled and she turned and she walked right through the wall. And uh, Dana said that uh, he got a call at two o'clock in the morning saying that, uh, that uh, the watchman was resigning. He said, I'm not going back in that building. 
Well, I want to go back to your your book coming out now this year, right this way, History of the Audience. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this book. All right. Throughout the, as I mentioned, I have seen literally thousands of Broadway shows. I love being part of an audience. And gradually, uh, you know, it occurred to me over time that, you know, we see, we read books about uh, movie stars or Broadway stars and composers and lyricists and playwrights and directors and all the people involved in the theater. But we never see a book about the most important collaborator of all. I actually wrote a whole book about collaboration. It was called The Alchemy of Theater. Essays on the on theater and the art of collaboration by and I got incredible people. Edward Albee wrote uh, with Cy Coleman wrote a, an essay for me. Paul Gimignani, William Ivy Long, Brian Stokes Mitchell, Cheetah Rivera, I, all these wonderful people wrote about collaborating. But it occurred to me that I was leaving out the most important collaborator of all, and that was the audience. And the more I think about it, Andrew, the more I think about it, the more I realize that theater does not happen on the stage. What happens on the stage is designed to evoke theater. Theater happens in the hearts and minds of the audience. And if you go all the way back to the Greeks, they, they, they regarded theater as something that was crucial for, your, for the mental health of the individual and the health of the polis, of the community. That theater was a way for us to exercise our emotions and to prepare us for the things that are going to happen in life. Not all the time does, uh, you know, do we sleep with our mothers as Oedipus did, but there's a lot of other things that how we deal with moral questions, how we deal with terrible tragedies in our lives, how we, it, it prepares us emotionally. And I realize theater happens in the audience and no one has ever told the history of the audience. And it's an interesting history. Audiences have changed. Audiences keep changing. Audiences are changing now. I mean, think about some of the jokes even that people laughed at 20 years ago that now you, you'd be blackballed for telling some of those jokes. Uh, one of the interesting things was, uh, I look back uh, back to the 19th century, the most popular form of entertainment in this country was uh, minstrel shows where white people would dress up as black people and they would they would tell these corny stories and they would do cakewalk and they would do all these other things. It was the most popular form of entertainment in the country. People were still doing blackface. Uh, Fred Astaire did blackface. Eddie Cantor did blackface. Mickey Mouse did blackface in one of his cartoons. It was considered a normal part of, of our entertainment world. It was a normal part of our humor. But Back in the vaudeville days, if you told a dirty joke, even a mildly smutty joke, you could be blackballed and you wouldn't be at to work. Now, that's only 100 years ago. Now, if you if you, you get canceled, if you, if, you, if you even refer, sometimes even referring to blackface, referring to things like that. Look what happened to the Scottsboro Boys, which was criticized, a musical that was criticizing racism, but it was using a minstrel show to tell that story. The show was hunted out of town. However, on the other hand, people tell dirty jokes all the time now. Kids on on sitcoms tell sexually themed jokes. Everybody laughs. A hundred years, that's how much our sense of humor has changed just in this country. And if you look at the, the history of audiences around the world and things that happened in the... Look what happened to that theater in Mariupol in, in, uh, in Ukraine filled with people and and it said it was a children's 
hospital had been set up in it and it was bombed anyway. I have a wonderful story that I'm very proud of finding. There's been a lot written about the Lincoln assassination. Usually it's about where John Wilkes Booth was and what happened afterward. I rarely see any account of what it was like to be in the audience that night, but I went to the National Archive and I found oral histories of people who were there at the theater that night. And don't forget, the Civil War had just ended on Monday. The surrender at Appomattox had happened Monday. So Lincoln had a busy week. Friday night, they decided to go out and see a show to kind of relax and feel better. They had, were invited to two shows that night. And they decided to go to Our American Cousin because it was a fundraiser for one of the actresses, Laura Keene. And Lincoln who was a theater goer, he, he, he and his wife said, you know, if we tell people we're going to see it, a lot of people will show up and make a lot of money for Laura. It'll be a favor to Laura. So they announced far and wide that Lincoln would be at the theater that night. That was kind of a bad choice, if you think about it, for security purposes, because John Wilkes Booth found out that Lincoln was going to be at the theater that night, because everybody knew about it. He knew it would be a big crowd that would be laughing loudly. So I have an account of, I have three accounts of people who are in the audience that night and how wonderful it was to hear him laugh. Most of the pictures, don't forget they had no TV, they had no internet. Most of the pictures that they saw of Lincoln look very, very serious. And here he was, the father of the country, and he was laughing his head off. And it just made everybody in the audience feel so good that he was triumphed in the war and now he was out and life was going to get back to normal. And then the shot rang out and there was a guy sitting right under his box who decided he was when because Booth jumped out of the presidential box, landed on the stage, yelled six Semper Tyrannus, which means thus always to tyrants and ran off. And he knew his way through the theater, but this guy didn't. But he jumped on the stage and tried to chase John Wilkes Booth. He wasn't able to catch him, but Booth's hat fell off and he was saying the scoundrel may have gotten away, but I got his hat. I just love that story. I'm sorry. I just love that story. Oh, that's amazing. It's a history. So I'm sorry I'm going on and on here. I'm just, I just love telling these stories of life, life in the audience, life of being part of an audience, you know, how audiences change, what they expect. It was a time when they would hand out glasses of water, but also, you know, I I have stories of, uh, it was a terrible fire in Chicago and, and more than a thousand people died because they had overloaded the theater and they didn't want people to sneak in. So they locked the doors and so people were trapped inside. So all sorts of lovely things have happened. People's lives have been changed. People's lives have been ended. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful history of how people have related to going to the theater. I love that message or thought that you're hoping that our listeners take away from our conversation today? I'm hoping that they realize how important they are to the theater going experience, how important they're being open-minded, open-hearted, and allowing the experience to affect their life, allowing their experience. There's a lot of it uh, going back to going back to the, the 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 Greeks, they felt that, and it was rehearsal for life, and they had they believed that, especially in the tragedies, you would undergo something called catharsis, which was an upwelling of terror and pity, that would, that would 
exercise your soul. You would exercise your emotional muscles. You'd laugh, you'd cry. You'd be like, oh, you'd be moved, etc. It was like going to the gym. And that's what that's what theater is is for. It's it's going to the gym for your soul and for your mind and for your heart. And audiences they they walk out and they say, well, the the actors were this, and I, I didn't I you know I thought it was a little slow. I thought I thought they could have uh, could have had more tap dancing. But think about how it affected you. That's the thing that I would like people to come away from the book and realize. I'm a collaborator, the same as the lyricist, the same as the orchestrator. I am part of the collaboration team. They did it for me. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. That there's the there's the explanation, the words that we've been looking for for the longest time. Mm-hmm. My final question for this first part is who are you hoping to have access to not only write this way, but also good morning, Olive? Well, you know, I want uh, uh, Good Morning Olive is very theater specific. I, I do mention a couple of movie theaters in there, but it is very theater specific. And I want here's here's the thing. Brian Stokes Mitchell wrote a preface to the last edition of At This Theater, and he talked about it, it was taking off on a, a speech that he had given when they opened the, what is now the Lyric Theater. It was then Ford Center. He was going to star in ragtime there. And he talked about the fact that theaters are like wine barrels in a way that the theater, the building itself, he feels absorbs a little bit of the energy from every play. And then the subsequent plays that appear there benefit from that, just like wine in, in in an old barrel, it benefits from being in that barrel. And he was saying that, he was going to be the first person who was going to add energy to the the redesigned lyric, uh, what is now the lyric theater, and I think that that plays into the ghosts as well. The ghosts are part of that; they're part. It's part of the experience, and I want people to realize that that when they walk into this space, that this is a space that has been inhabited for a long time by many wonderful artists, and perhaps Stokes is right. Perhaps a little bit of that energy, a little bit of that, the ghosts are part of that energy affects your theater going experience so that there's that and also people just love ghost stories whenever i say people say oh my wife will say you know my husband wrote a a book about ghosts everybody gets quiet and they're like oh tell us some of the stories people love ghost stories and so you know there's been a million ghost stories there's the weird usa series there's there's countless terrible television shows where people with all this machinery go into these houses. And they're like, oh, I heard a click from the other room. Never once, my friend, never once does a ghost appear and say, I'm a ghost. Boo. That never happens on any of these shows. But that's what happens to people in the theater. They've actually had experiences with ghosts. So I feel like my book is a lot more legit than these these uh, TV shows. Although there is, there was one TV series called um, The Secrets of New York that gets replayed every once in a while. And they interviewed me. They did one episode on the ghosts of Broadway and and they did a lovely job, I have to say. And I have to say it gets repeated constantly, especially at, at uh, especially at Halloween. And they did, they actually did a, a nice job, but they didn't claim to be seeing ghosts. That's the thing. I don't, I don't like these people that, that claim that these little sounds and like, oh, look, we've got a we've, thing is jiggling on our screen. So that means that there's a ectoplasm in the room. I prefer, 
And oh, and I have to tell you, when I was working on this ghost book, I approached, I know a lot of people in theater and I approached a lot of them for ghost stories. So I approached Lynn Ahrens, the wonderful lyricist of, of Ragtime and many other shows. And I said, Lynn, do you ever have a ghostly experience? I'd love to put it in the book. And she said, I haven't, Robert, I haven't. She said, but I'll write one for you. And I said, Lynn, as much as I would love to have an original Lynn Aaron's ghost story in my book, I have to say no, because that's not what the book is about. The book is about people who believe they've actually had a ghostly experience. So I have to say that is kind of a regret, but I feel more legit because I did that. I feel a little bit more legit, although that kind of broke my heart also. <laughs> I want to now change things up and I'm very excited for the second part. I'm over the moon because the stories and the knowledge you have is going to blow my mind, I feel like. And I want to start things off by asking you what shows, playwrights or composers in the past have inspired you or are some of your favorites? Well, well, well. I had a wonderful teacher in college. Uh, his name was Siegmund. And he introduced me to a lot of the, the great playwrights and so even though nowadays tennessee williams doesn't play as well as he used to because his prose is so purple but i'm sorry those plays still move me a great deal you know i'm gonna say sondheim but you know i have to tell you when i first got interested in theater i was down on sondheim i didn't think he was a very good lyricist why because he in a, um, a little night music which opened while i was in uh, my last year in high school but I was still very involved. I mean, I, I listened to every show. I saw every show. He rhymed liaison, raisins with liaisons in, in the song Liaisons. Not even figs, raisins. Ah, oh, liaisons. And I thought, well, that's lazy. And little did, and I mean, subsequently I have I have come around because he's had a lot of really other good rhymes. And I mean, he's a genius. But, you know, when you're that age, you know, you think that you know better than anybody else. So I have to confess that I went through a non-Sondheim phase. Most people will not confess this, but I'm honest and I will tell you I did. But it disappeared with my teens. And, and you know, the, the work has just been so amazingly inspirational over all these years. And I saw every Sondheim show in its original production from company until... And I can't wait until the new one comes out this fall. But I saw every single one of those productions. I saw the original production of Follies. I, I'm at just at the age where I saw a lot of these, the greats of Broadway at the very end of their careers. But I got to see them. I got to see all these amazing people, Alfred Drake and John Raitt and, and, and all these wonderful performers, uh, again, uh, kind of at the end of their careers. But I got to see Sondheim at the beginning. And I'd say out of all the shows, the one that hit me hardest, and they all did, but I remember going in to see Sunday in the Park with George and sitting through that first act, Sunday in the Park with George, and then the first act finale Sunday, when the all the pieces of the painting come together, 
that was it was playing at the booth theater another booth reference here different booth though booth's brother i came out of the theater and i just i walked through schubert alley 44th street 8th avenue 45th street i i was on a cloud i was just like this is like one of the most incredible theater going experiences of my life seeing this show and so i would say that steve has been a great inspiration but you know it's easy to go with steve that's an easy choice I'm also a big fan of, uh, and let's go a little bit more obscure. I'm a big fan of Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt. They wrote The Fantastics and a bunch of other shows. And Tom especially was, he was an experimenter. He, or he thought of himself as an experiment. Thinks, I should say, thinks he's still alive. I was at his house last summer. Tom thinks of himself as, as an experimenter. And he did try to do some experiments. And some of the things that he wrote even these very obscure things. He wrote a musical based on Our Town. And there's a song in the second act called Goodbye World. When the, the, the daughter is, she, she has died in childbirth and she's in the cemetery. And she asks to see, relive one day from her life. And the narrator lets her, lets her, she says, how about your 12th birthday? We'll let you see your 12th birthday. And she goes and she she can only stand it for about, 10 minutes because it's so simple and nothing special is happening but it's so beautiful and suddenly all the things about life impress her and she suddenly all these things that were so minor that we take for granted suddenly take on this enormous significance to her to her life and tom and harvey wrote a song to her for her called goodbye world it follows the the lines in the in the original play pretty closely but it's just saying goodbye to drinking coffee saying goodbye to just waking up all these little things that we don't even think of and that once they're gone they're they're gone forever and it's the preciousness of life and so tom and harvey really captured that in a way that a lot of other people don't they saw deeply into into things so i love them sorry a little verklempt that song always <laughs> makes me just thinking about that song makes me verklempt i also love cy coleman i don't understand why cy coleman doesn't get a revival every friggin year just like steve sondheim because some of those shows uh city of city of angels city of angels was so brilliantly written the the play out music at the end of the show was so good people didn't leave they stayed there to hear the play out music and and each song is is orchestrated in the style of a different uh, a different big band from that from that period but you know and he could write he could write like a jazzy score and then he could write like a rossini operatic score he was an incredible talent and he in, inspires me enormously a lot of my references are musical but I also have other areas. Uh, believe it or not, I have just as much interest in science fiction. I have all the nerdy interests. All the nerdy interests are my interests. I go to every year to a 24-hour science fiction film marathon. And for several years, I was one of the judges of the contest. And there's a science fiction writer named Harlan Ellison, who I uh, always felt... He wrote City at the Edge of Tomorrow. He wrote an episode of Star Trek for those for Trekkies out there. A wonderful Babylon 5. He was one of the conceivers of Babylon 5. Wonderful writer. Larry Niven, also a wonderful science fiction writer. I love, I, I also am very interested in popular music. I love Steely Dan. I, I don't love all the Yacht Rock people. I just love Steely Dan because they're so great. 
the, these are people who have just inspired me. And I have to say my co my colleague, I guess, Peter Felicia, is just a, a wonderful writer. Everything he writes is I, you know, I, I go around saying, I, you know, I'm pretty knowledgeable about theater, but when Peter's around, it's like, you know, I, I bow down to Peter because his knowledge is superior to everyone's knowledge. We were recently on a Zoom together with Ethan Morden and a lot of other theater writers were, were there at the same time. And everybody was, well, Ethan didn't bow down to Peter because he doesn't bow down to anybody. But <laughs> Peter was, Peter is, I, I, I find him to be his, the depth of his knowledge and his ability to use it in his life. It's, it's, I, I just think he's an amazing guy. I love that. Oh my gosh. I love that. And I think you are the most apt person for this next question, which is, have you seen any great theater lately that you might be able to recommend to our listeners? Well, I have seen some great, some terrific theater, and I've seen some, <laughs> I have to say that uh, last couple of years, for some reason, they've been doing a lot of shows about men in drag. And a lot of, like they did Mrs. Doubtfire, and they did Tootsie, and a lot of them, they they didn't quite know how to deal with the men in drag thing in the Me Too era. And it was almost a little uncomfortable. So when I walked into Some Like It Hot, I thought, here we go again. Another drag, another show where guys are in drag. But I have to say the score by Shaman and Whitman is absolutely brilliant. It's a very entertaining show. Yes, there's a tap number in it. I know a lot of people think, you know, they, they either love the tap number or they hate the tap number. And certainly the history of tap, I also deal with that in, in my history of audiences, but because the history of tap goes way, way back. But anyway, one thing that I found interesting, there are two shows that have almost the same plot, and that is Bad Cinderella and Anne Juliet. I mean, they're both they're both uh, new takes on traditional stories. Characters, um, an important male character is assumed to be dead at the beginning and turns out to be alive at the end. They're all, they're, they're trying to be very woke. They try to be very different. There's a lot of parallels between these two shows. But Anne Juliet is just so funny and witty uh, in the way it, it's framed. Uh, Shakespeare comes to his wife Anne Hathaway and says, I have written this very romantic show for you. And it's called Romeo and Juliet. And she reads it and she goes, it's very nice, very nice. But why does she have to die at the end? And he goes, well, that's just the way I wrote it. And she goes, I would like you to rewrite it with Juliet surviving. And he's like, oh, and she gets him to do it. And then as the show goes on, it's the two of them writing the sequel to Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet is still, it's just such a clever idea for a show. And uh, the music is, is wonderful. And I, I have to say, I, I think that I haven't seen New York, New York yet. And I'm going to see Shucked. I'm looking at my calendar. I'm going to see Shucked next week. So I can't say that it's, it's, a, it's a lock or a front runner at any rate for the Tony Award. But I think Anne Juliet is going to be a, an important competitor in that in that category so i would say and juliet is is very good i don't know although i have to say my favorite show of the year is some like it hot that's my favorite uh it's kind of a more old-fashioned show but in a way it's it's a very contemporary show also because they changed the way the the character uh, the two characters these two musicians are hiding out from the mob and they dress in dragon and, and they play in an all uh all girl orchestra 
but what the, but they change the story a little bit because one of them starts to realize by putting on these clothes that he's discovering an identity that he didn't know he had. Mm -hmm. And for once they have handled this drag thing with sensitivity and, and it really works. It really works. Yeah. I also, this year, I loved Kite Runner. And, and, you know, it's been, that's two shows this season, Kite Runner and Life of Pi, that have been done and done and done and done and done. But I think Kite Runner really captured something that the the movie did not capture. And the movie was wonderful. But I thought that I, I was very moved by the the stage version of Kite Runner. And, and I thought Life of Pi was very good as well. But Kite Runner really, really got me. I had a catharsis in kite runner that i did not have in life of pi so uh speaking now i have to apply all my all these uh, rules that i've come up with i have to apply them to myself when i see shows what is your favorite part about working in the theater when i was a kid i grew up in a blue collar household and my father was a prison guard and we didn't really have a lot of money to see shows when i was in high school i befriended another guy and he and I were in some of the shows together but he was a little skinny guy nerdy kind of think of Woody Allen as a teenager and not perverted that's what he was like and he had a job even though he was in high school he had a job working for our local newspaper he had a column in our local newspaper and he used to go in to see shows on Broadway all the time but in the 70s it was dangerous to go into Times Square. It was really legitimately physically dangerous. So he just looked around to see who was his biggest, meanest looking friend. I'm six foot four. Actually, I've shrunk a little recently, but I was six foot four. I looked like I was on the football team, which I was briefly, although I kept referring to the practices as rehearsals. So the coach uh, could tell that I wasn't going to be I was gonna, wasn't going to be around for long. But anyway, so I started going in with Dave to see shows and I was kind of his bodyguard. But, you know, and, and so I got I got hooked. I got hooked. But then Dave, uh, Times Square got a little safer and Dave went off to college and got a girlfriend. And so I was I, I didn't have means to see shows anymore. So I took over his column in my local newspaper when I was 17 years old so I could get free tickets. And I have to tell you, to answer your question, I love getting free tickets to shows. I just love walking up to the theater and having them hand me tickets. I just love it. And I love going to see, I, I love going in. I love the audiencing experience. I never had a word for it, but I love the experience of being part of an audience. I love knowing more about more and more. You know, people go to college for years to train to be actors and writers and things like that. Nobody goes, they don't have audience studies where you learn how to be a great audience. Fortunately, as because I was a theater critic and I was theater critic for on Long Island and then up in Connecticut and, and in New York, like for instance, for 14 years, I saw every show that was done at the Goodspeed Opera House. What a, I thought I was just seeing a bunch of shows for free, but what a, a master's degree in old musicals that would never get done by anybody else. I got to see all these great old shows being done by professional actors. And so I, I learned and I feel like I became a professional audience, just the way all these other people are professional directors and writers and things like that. And I love that. I love going in and my wife, who is I have to say, she, I, I adore her, but she's kind of a civilian as far as this is concerned. So she's always like, we saw Dear World recently at Encore. 
And she was like, what, what is this dear world? I never heard of it. And I said, well, sit down, baby. And I told her the whole history of telling you the story of Mad Woman of Shio and Angela Lansbury and the Tony and, and you know, Jerry Herman losing his Midas touch at the end of the 60s and et cetera, et cetera. And she finally had to say, enough, enough. I, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy and I enjoy writing about it. I, I was in I was in shows in high school and people were like, oh, you're going to become an actor. And I said, I, I don't want to be an actor. I really want to write about shows, see a lot of them and get free tickets. I just I, that that's so I figured my this is my give back for all those free tickets. This is my give back. The, my experience of being in the audience. Yes. Well, as we wrap this interview up, I just have to ask my favorite question. And I can't wait to hear yours, which is, what is your favorite theater memory? My favorite theater memory. All right, I'll tell you my favorite theater memory. This guy, Dave, and I, we got free tickets to things. But every once in a while, we would we'd break down and we would, our, our little uh, side jobs, we would buy tickets to something. Joe Papp was the king of the world in the 1970s. So in the, the beginning of the new season... The 1974-75 season, we tried to get press tickets and they said, no, we're not having in like weeklies in the suburbs. So Dave and I sighed, pulled out our wallets and bought a season ticket to see the shows at, at the public theater. And I have to tell you, it was one terrible show after another, just one awful show after another. And toward the end of the season, I was like, Dave, I, I've had enough. I'm just going to skip this last show. What's the last show? A chorus line. I said, it sounds like a generic show. I don't want to see a generic show. And Dave said, uh, I don't know. I, I've been hearing that it, that uh, that it's been, been working on it for a while, and it's supposed to be pretty good. And I was like, oh, God. Can it be, it's got to be better than these other shows we've seen. So my friend Dave dragged me in to see this A chorus line show. And I got there. And there was a line of people waiting for ticket cancellations and it was all celebrities. And I thought, they don't have like house seats for the celebrities to go in to see this show. So I went in and was at the Newman Theater, which is like a flight of steps. And I had a ticket on the aisle because my legs are long and I was sitting there and I don't know how or why they did this, but they let these people come in and it's this, this flight of steps and they let them sit on the steps next to the seats. And Buck Henry sat next to me. He's forgotten now, but he was a big, a famous writer at the time. And I'm thinking, Buck Henry is sitting to see this show. Maybe the show isn't going to be so bad. And then they launched into Chorus Line. And I have to say, as it went on, I, I felt like I was getting taller and taller in the seat watching. No, I knew nothing about Chorus Line. I experienced it entirely for the first time with the original cast off Broadway, right in front of me. They had just finished writing it. And, and it was just, oh my God, oh my God. And then they did that little thing at the end where he says, and, and of course, you don't know who's going to get the job. You know it's four and four, four boys and four girls. And there's way more than that on the stage. And you were like, who's going to... I mean, that whole dimension to it. And they used a lot of very uh, strong language, which was... I'd never heard of that before. And then there was the 
the the the scene where where the the character comes out and it's not a song it's this long monologue about being a drag performer mm-hmm. and having his parents come and see and they didn't know he was a drag performer and having his parents come to see him and it was like this was things these are things that were not spoken of openly or rarely were spoken nowadays everybody talks gay this gay that it's and it's much better now i mean it was so uptight in those days and here's this guy comes out and he's just tells his story right in front of everybody and there's so many things about that show that just they don't land the same way that they that they did in, in that in that year in 1975 when I saw it. But sitting there in the audience, everybody, if it were a cartoon, everybody would have had an exclamation point over their head. And then at the end, when they they have the people step forward and you think, oh, they're going to get the job. And then he and I don't I don't, I don't want to spoil this for, for people, but they do the, a thing at the end where they announce oh. who got the job and who didn't get the job. And it's not what you expect. And and it was just such a coup de theater, that moment when you find out who gets and you see that very emotional reaction to getting the job because they established the I want song is right at the beginning of the show. I I need this job. Mm-hmm. And to see the who when I was writing, I wrote a whole book about chorus line as a result of of seeing a chorus line. Uh-huh. I with the original cast, they collaborated with me and I used my experience of of working on, of, of seeing that show. Here I am when my hair was dark with Tommy Walsh and Byrick Lee. It moved me to write a whole book about that experience. And I have to say, seeing that first, that that performance of A Chorus Line before anybody knew what Chorus Line was, unforgettable. Sorry, it was a long answer to your question. No, no, no. I, I could listen to that for days. That is, Wow. Oh my gosh. To see it at the public, not just see it like on Broadway, to see it at the public. Wow. Oh when, my gosh. When they when Hamilton was playing at the at the public, also in the Newman Theater, they invited the original cast of Chorus Line to come back. And the cast of Hamilton at the end of the performance, and they invited me to come and see this. At the end of the performance, all the cast of Hamilton lined up on the stage with their with their resume photos, and they came down and they sang "What I Did for Love" with the original cast sitting in the front, original cast of chorus lines sitting in the front, and then all the chorus line people went up on the stage and kissed them and everything, and it just continued. I said, "I boy, I remember seeing chorus line here, you know, thirty years ago, and now here we are again." And of course, I knew all the chorus line people from working on the book, and it was lovely to see them all again. The only one I really stay in contact with a lot is Bayork. She's a goddess. Absolutely. Absolutely. That. Um, thank you so much for those memories. That is incredible. Oh, my gosh. That. Oh. Well, besides Right This Way, are there any other projects or, or productions or anything you have coming on the pipeline we might be able to plug? No one has ever asked me that before, but I will tell you, I am working on a children's book that is set backstage at a Broadway show. Here are some of the the drawings, the preliminary drawings for the characters. Is that a is that a squib? Yes, uh, that's what I'm. Yes. That's an illustrator. Well, of course. Who else would you get to illustrate a book? Yeah. Yes. Oh um, my gosh, I can't wait. I'm buying a copy for my goddaughter. Done and done. We love getting her. Theater. God bless you. It's called Born in a Trunk, and it's being worked on right now. Amazing. Well, finally, if our listeners want more information about either Good Morning Olive or your upcoming book, Right This Way, A History of the Audience, maybe they also want more information about you. They perhaps want to contact you. How can they do that? 
you can get to me through my 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 Facebook page is probably the best thing to do. Instant message me on my Facebook page, which is Robert Viagas. It's it's uh, it's open to the public. Uh, honestly, I part of the reason I have it open to the public is to get more ghost story. I get people send me ghost stories all the time. People write to me going, I had a ghost story. Can you, can I send it to you? Would you include it in the, in the second edition? I said, absolutely, baby, send it right over. And some of them are very good. And some of them are not so good. <laughs> I like a story that has a beginning, a middle and an end. Some of the, like, well, we were at the theater and we smelled the cigarette smoke and no one was sm- smoking a cigarette. Like, okay. And what happened? No, that's it. And like, I'm not going to leave yeah, that. It could have been coming off the street. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Of course, there's the cigarette smoke at the Lyceum that everybody believes is fe- is Bob Fosse, because Fosse used to smoke this, and it's smell. They say it smells just like Fosse. Uh, so I that one they included. That. And that you know what's funny is I have smelled cigarette smoke up in the balcony more than once when I've been there. But at the I thought it's from the street, and I'm just like, oh, whatever, it's just from the street. I never knew it's Bob. You've experienced Bob Fosse, the ghost hey, of Bob Fosse. I'm gonna pay attention to that when I go see Grey House. Well, Robert, truly, this has been such an honor and a joy. I, I want to talk to you forever and ever. The stories you have, the knowledge you have, this has just been incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today and for My talking to about your books and everything. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. I spend most of my time with civilians, quite honestly, and they want to talk about, you know, the, the Final Four and, you know, sports things and stuff like that. And I just sit there very quietly. So every once in a while, like when I run into Felicia at the theater or I, I, you know, run into my theater friends, I feel like I can finally, you know, talk about things that are really important to me. And I, I thank you for giving me a chance to do that. Thank you. My guest today has been Robert Viagas, who is an author of 22 books, including Good Morning Olive and the upcoming release book, Write This Way, A History of the Audience. Write This Way is available for pre-sale wherever you get your books, but Good Morning Olive, you can get right now. And I know I'm going to go get that book right now. Good man. All the ghosts on Broadway. But make sure you check out all of his books, all his many collections, all of his work he's done with Playbill. And if you have a great ghost story or you'd like more information, check out Robert Viagas on Facebook and send him a message. Send me the- you got a great story with the beginning, middle, and end. That's right. But make sure to check out these books, Good Morning Olive, and write this way. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. 
Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you. <laughs>